0: UEG Talks. Gastroenterology to go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of the UEG Talks, uh, covering the best of the UEG week in Copenhagen. Uh, I'm Pratip Andrei, and I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to invite Julia Miley, the chair of the UEG Scientific Committee, who has joined me today in co-hosting this very special episode. Welcome, Julia.
2: Thank you for allowing me to participate today. It's going to be a real fun to talk to our special guest, whom we're going to introduce in a second, about IBD this time, and I'm really looking forward to it.
1: So um, as Julia said uh, in this episode, we're covering the highlights and the best of the IBD during the UG week in Copenhagen. Um, me personally, as a non-IBD specialist, um, I always updated my knowledge in these international conferences. And in the past, I felt comfortable. I felt that my knowledge was up to date whenever I attended these. However, over the Last few years, the number of drugs that have come up in the field of IVD have expanded leaps and bounds to an extent that these days I'm really struggling to even remember the drug names, uh, let alone where they stand in the treatment paradigm. And in terms of, you know, in the past, we could follow a simple flowchart, uh, which kind of looked very simple, and I could take the patient through a treatment regime. But it's just impossible these days. It's it's all it all almost looks like a maze, and with so many crossroads. And as much as I'm confused, our patients are very much confused about how they, where they stand, what drugs they want to choose. Um, during the UEG week in Copenhagen, there was some exciting new science was presented, and I was truly impressed. I would ask uh, Julia to uh, do the honors of introducing our guest today.
2: Our special guest today is Tim Ryan. Tim is a consultant gastroenterologist at Cambridge University Hospital. He's also the lead of IBD service at Cambridge. And he serves um, at the EUG and also at the European Crohn's Colitis Organization Scientific Committee. And in this capacity, he has been heavily involved not only in this year's program of IBD, but also in last year's program. And I'm really grateful to you, Tim, that you made um, you put so much effort into a brilliant program for UeG. So let me start by asking you: which study would you consider as the most groundbreaking study that was presented this year in Copenhagen?
0: Thanks, Julia, and um, thank you for those kind words. Thanks for all your leadership on on the scientific committee. Um, um, well, look, it was a really interesting meeting. And I was just thinking as Pradeep was talking there about why things are so confusing in IBD, because we've got a lot of drugs, but it's not that many, right? We've all learned far more drugs than that in one afternoon in medical school. So why are things so confusing? And I think one of the problems we've had is that obviously all our registrational trials, for reasons best known to the FDA, are still very much placebo-controlled. So we get new drugs arriving and we know they're better than placebo But to your point, Pradeep, we're still left with a maze. You know, how do we position them? Well, for me, one of the standout abstracts at UEG this year was a late breaker, which tried to answer precisely that question around drug positioning for a drug which is only just coming to market. So this is a really interesting idea. We've got a new drug in Crohn's disease, Risenkizumab, and we know it's better than placebo, but most of us have not had the opportunity to use it outside of clinical trials yet. And already... We have a head-to-head study, the sequence trial, being presented as uh, this sort of groundbreaking meeting in, uh, at UEG, comparing the efficacy of risankizumab with an existing drug in Crohn's disease, ustekinumab. Uh, and so what we saw in the sequence trial was a, a pretty bold and ambitious idea. Over 500 patients randomized one-to-one to receive treatment with either ustekinumab or risankizumab two drugs which are both quite closely related. Ustekinamab you'll remember blocks IL-12 but also IL-23 whereas Rizinkismab just blocks IL-23. And what um, the sequence trial set out to do was to look at specifically a group of patients who'd already had treatment with uh, an anti-TNF therapy for their Crohn's. And of course this is Um, The reality of much of uh, healthcare for Crohn's within Europe, where we have relatively low-cost biosimilar anti-TNF therapies available, so very often for for pharmaco-economic reasons, patients will go to a biosimilar anti-TNF first. But for those who don't respond or lose response, what should we do next? Long story short, Sequence gives us a pretty clear answer to that question, which is to say that uh, Risenkizumab appears to be the better drug. Uh, in a nutshell. Uh, I can go into more detail, but effectively what we see is that uh, at relatively early time points, so around six months into treatment, uh, already we see, uh, in fact, uh, risk patients on risk and doing, uh, doing somewhat better in terms of their clinical response. And then the, the primary week outcome at week 48, endoscopic remission, statistically significantly better in patients treated with kismab compared to ustekinumab, And by a pretty big margin, actually, an approximate doubling in the rates of endoscopic remission for patients 48 weeks into treatment, uh, 30, 32 percent compared to 16 percent. Um, and then every single secondary endpoint very much uh, showing significant advantage to risikizumab. So I think it's a really interesting, quite a bold uh, study and gives a very clear answer. And for me, it was a real standout from the meeting.
1: So, um, Tim, uh, we, we were just mentioning about the, the the whole plethora of drugs, new drugs that we have. Uh, uh, and for me, looking at it from as an outsider, they all seem much of a muchness. I know you you you, you mentioned about Kismap slightly different to the rest. Uh, they all seem to work similarly. The efficacy seems to be similar. They all work amazingly well for naive patients to advanced therapy. And they don't seem to work well for previously exposed patients. Um, are there any other drugs that stand out that 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 would stand out from the crowd, so to say?
0: Yeah, you know, I, you you might well have a a, a valid point there, Pradeep. That, that there is, I think, I certainly sense a kind of fatigue uh, amongst people who aren't maybe up close and personal with all of the drugs, a sense that constantly in IBD we're seeing new uh, new trials reading out, but actually the, the trial readouts often look very similar. I think there is there is some truth in that. Of course, in in, in fairness, although the tri- trial readouts may often look very similar in terms of headline numbers, the patients going into the trials increasingly are more and more refractory. So, you know, we have seen a number of trials demonstrating Uh, relatively good rates of of, uh, clinical remission and scopic remission in patient populations who are really quite dissimilar from the sorts of populations of patients going into trials just five, ten years ago. But, you know, sticking with the uh, anti-P19s this year at UEG, we saw data in ulcerative colitis for two different anti-P19s, risicismab and gazelkumab, both of them showing very respectable deltas against placebo for treatment naive patients about a a placebo-adjusted delta of about 21% for both drugs. Uh, But absolutely to your point Pradeep, uh, that delta is much smaller in patients with uh, with 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 prior biological exposure, um, I guess if I was going to pick out one other group of, uh, of, of of drugs that I think have really shown a lot of interest, we also saw data presented for the anti-TL1A uh, drug PRA023, uh, which is is one of two anti-TL1A is going through uh, now phase three clinical testing. But we saw the phase two studies in in uc presented by bruce sands and actually what stood out for me about that drug was was two interesting points firstly a very respectable delta against placebo and bio naive patients approaching thirty uh, percent for the end of clinical remission at uh, of the induction trial but importantly a very strong delta also in that bio exposed patient population but the other interesting and exciting group about this drug is this is the first uh, or, or, or this is this is a group of drugs now going into Phase three trials with a biomarker that appears to predict a population of patients that have a uh, an increased chance of, cle- of achieving remission with the drug. Um, and so a companion diagnostic biomarker that could potentially help us position this drug or this group of drugs if and when they do come through phase three trials. So definitely an area to watch for me at least.
2: That's very interesting. So if you really think there is one study where you would believe that it would definitely change your clinical practice, what would be the one you would name?
0: We did, in fairness, see a lot of abstracts um, around switching from intravenous to subcutaneous uh, infiximab. Not a glamorous area. Um, lots of trials doing this. We've had registrational trials showing us that uh, for treatment-naive patients, this is a, 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 an acceptable approach. But we many, many of us still have large populations of patients on intravenous infliximab. And I think one group of studies, maybe not one single study, but one group of studies in this area, all showing a very common message, namely that for patients on a range of different doses of intravenous infliximab, safe effective, possibly even superior strategy, switching these patients across to subcutaneous infliximab. So I think, you know, if there are any people out there who still have populations of patients being dosed routinely with intravenous infliximab, it really is, uh, I think, long overdue time now to um, uh, to, to look at the, uh, the economics and the reality of switching those patients to subcutaneous infliximab.
2: That's really interesting. Uh,
1: Tim, on that note, can I ask you, uh, for people like me who kind of practice early IBD sort of early, early biologicals. So on a practical note the advice is you start them on um, IV infliximab and you switch them to subcut as soon as they're loaded after three doses is that what you what you would do in your, in your practice?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's the, or even two doses of IV and then and then across to, um, uh, to to subcut. But and I think that's that's now sort of well established. But the question, of course, is for those older patients you've got who have been on IV infliximab since you know many years. Uh, what, what can or should you do with those? I think there's been some concern, particularly around patients on maybe slightly higher doses than the standard five milligram per kilogram every eight weeks intravenous dosing can we can we safely switch those patients across to um to to subcut and, uh, and the answer from multiple studies seems to be that yes with the the possible exception I think you know some some European colleagues have patients on 10 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks and for that population I think switching to standard fortnightly dosing with uh, with subcut infliximab it, it might be might be challenging um, but for all other populations I think s- switching to subcut is safe and effective.
2: So, that was very interesting, Tim. So, my next question would be, is there any basic science which leads us to new targets or a better understanding of the IBD pathophysiology, which might be even more important?
0: Gosh, there's lots, um, really lots. I think one of the really nice things that UEG does is highlight the work of young upcoming investigators. Um, with the Rising Star Awards, um, so these are these are highly competitive awards uh, that UEG uses to recognise the real standout work of, uh, of of leaders in their field already at relatively early career stages. Um, and I think you know, for anyone familiar with with the world of IBD, it's impossible to ignore the work of Joanna Torres and all that she's doing, uh, both with colleagues in the US but but in her home country of Portugal. She gave a fantastic presentation highlighting a potentially entirely new group of patients. These are patients that we know based upon their family history are at increased risk of IBD but don't yet have or may never go on to develop IBD. And asking the question, are there are there studies, are there things we can do to identify uh, IBD in a pre-symptomatic stage? And she highlighted, you know, many many people may not be aware of the sheer huge amounts of work that's gone into putting together the enormous cohorts that you need if you're going to identify uh, this group of individuals. And she highlighted, uh, you know, studies such as GEM, uh, her own work with the PREDICT study and indeed the Meconium study. These are, these are are all studies looking at individuals who one way or another are either at increased risk of developing IBD or for whom there's um, um, pre-diagnostic information and uh, and blood samples available for. Um, And what she and colleagues around the world have done is shown that effectively there are many years before diagnosis there are already serological, microbiological uh, and other predictors of uh, high-risk patients um, that enable us potentially to identify people in a kind of pre-diagnostic phase of IVD. And of course, this raises enormous uh, potential for early intervention studies, not studies that would involve using you know high cost or potentially um, uh, toxic medications, but nonetheless, the ways that we could think about lifestyle modification, uh, dietary modification, microbial modification, to really try and alter an individual's chance of going on to develop inflammatory bowel disease. These are these are massive, massive global studies that require a huge cooperative effort. But Joanna has been really leading uh, many of these uh, of these efforts, and it was really fascinating to hear her present
2: totally agreed, and I think the plethora of genetic changes also adds to that, or susceptibilities, I wouldn't call them um, changes, to the diversity and heterogeneity of the disease, and that might be very relevant if you want to do early interventional trials. Tim, that brings me to my, well, my last question, and that is something which, as a pancreatologist who was never very much involved in industry-driven trials because there was just nobody um, who was that much interested in benign pancreatic disorders, what do you think would happen to the field of IBD if industry would, say, pull out their support, and how do you rate um, industry-sponsored trials? I mean, we we, we get heavily criticized at the scientific committee if we promote industry-sponsored trials, and I totally back to differ because I believe that a well-designed study which definitely changed clinical practice, regardless who's the sponsor, should be brought to the attention um, of all clinicians. But what are your thoughts as a person who's much more involved in those discussions and trials?
0: That's a really interesting and, and, and provocative question to and I think it's a fair one to ask. Um, you know the reality is that um, uh, that all of the treatments we currently prescribe, are made and manufactured, or at some point their life cycle have been made and manufactured by a pharmaceutical company that's had to research, develop, and then market and manufacture those drugs. Um, you know, and ultimately, those in the vast majority of cases, those companies are accountable to their shareholders and and, and need to find strategies to turn a profit. So, you know, there can and will be something of attention there. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the surest way way to turn a profit is to develop a uh, a treatment that's effective uh, and uh, and convincingly effective for treatment of, of a disease. You know that's ultimately what uh, what leads physicians to prescribe. And 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 you know the idea that industry is trying to hoodwink or um, or mislead physicians into into prescribing inappropriately, I think is is kind of insulting to clinicians for the most part, who are quite used to appraising data and and making decisions. Um, so what would happen? Well, uh, you know, if industry pulled out completely, we, we for sure we wouldn't have new treatments coming through, and we certainly wouldn't have the kind of large-scale um, uh, randomized controlled trials that that, that we've seen. Uh, you know, can take years and uh, cost cost uh, you know hundreds of millions to uh, to develop and deliver. Um, but at the same time, yeah, absolutely. I've just mentioned Joanna Torres' work. You know, these are huge cohort studies being put together without, uh, without industry uh, support or with minimal industry support. So, you know, there's there's excellent science being done. But just, you know, to come back to Bill Sanborn's talk again, highlighting the pathway to, to drug discovery and drug development, he gave a beautiful tandem talk with Arthur Carcer, Highlighting that sooner or later, you know, research in academia has to pass over to drug development in biotech and ultimately in big pharma. Um, and actually, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to think about ways that we can make that process work more smoothly um, to the betterment of our knowledge and ultimately to our to our to the options we uh, we have to, to deliver to patients. I guess if there is one. So sort of legitimate frustration I think that many of us feel it's that the industry abstracts that we can see you know we all want the really big exciting groundbreaking abstracts that tell us things like the sequence trial that really help us clearly understand we also see a lot of abstracts coming through from industry with so-called salami slicing you know post hoc analyses of uh, you know yet another set of endpoints and sometimes I can I completely understand the idea that sometimes these can feel rather uninspiring they you know they very rarely Uh, change practice. Um, They're important and they help those of us sort of really up close and personal with the data. They help us sort of understand little snippets around drugs, but they very rarely change practice. So I can see that that can be frustrating, but that is part of the process of really responsible analysis and reporting of these complex large uh, clinical trial programs you know they have multiple endpoints they all need to be considered and ultimately uh, reported in a transparent manner which is one of the purposes of you know peer-reviewed literature and, and of course of peer-reviewed conference presentations
2: can I, can I just summarize that in one sentence? And that is that everybody who's involved in healthcare and care of our patient is interested in our patient and regardless where the information comes from, it supports our patient care and therefore we should appreciate it.
0: I think that's very fair, Julia.
2: Okay, wonderful. So, Tim, thanks a million for being with us. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I hand over to Pradeep for our final remarks. Thank you, Julia.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. It's very difficult to cover uh, everything, but Tim's made an effort to kind of highlight probably the most important uh, science that was presented I would advise our listeners to go to the MyUG platform. Uh, the, you can still have access to so many abstracts out there and, and go through some of them. Uh, certainly, when I went through, there's so much more to to look through, basically, which I couldn't really uh, cover during my uh, visit to Copenhagen. In the next episode, we, myself and Julie Miley, will be talking to Dr. Cesare Hassan, uh, about the best of uh, endoscopy at UEG. This is due to be released on the 29th of November on all podcast platforms. Uh, Please just search UEG Talks on your favorite uh, podcast platform. Uh, Until then, goodbye.